section six of the crusades by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter three the first crusade part two the iniquities wrought by the soldiers of the cross were fearful indeed but the horrors of the warfare were in some small measure softened by the honour which the foremost warriors on both sides paid each to the bravery and good faith of the other and this feeling expressed itself in a word which even now has by no means lost its meaning the quality of courtesy so named displayed itself in the readiness to give place to another where strength and power might have refused all concessions it was closely allied to the christian qualities of meekness and mercy and any approach to this heavenly temper was a gain indeed in a brutalized and ferocious age the highest glory of the crusading knight was to be a mirror of courtesy and this glory is especially associated with the name of tancred tancred lived fought and conquered the rinaldo whom tasso paints in his epic poem on the deliverance of jerusalem is a being out of cloudland like the greek achilles and the trojan hector and the persian rustam the miserable remnant of three thousand men who escaped from the field of blood before the city of the seljukian sultan found a refuge in byzantine territory about the time when the better appointed armies of the crusaders were setting off on their eastward journey the most disciplined of these troops set out with a vast following from the banks of the meuse and the moselle under godfrey of bouillon who led them safely and without opposition to the hungarian border here the armies of hungary barred the way against the advance of a host at whose hands they dreaded a repetition of the havoc wrought by the lawless bands of peter the hermit and his self-chosen colleagues three weeks passed away in vain attempts to get over the difficulty the hungarian king demanded as a hostage baldwin the brother of the general the demand was refused and godfrey put him to shame by surrendering himself he asked only for a free passage and a free market but although these were granted it was not in his power to prevent some disorder and some depredations as his army or horde passed through the country the mischief might have been worse had not the hungarian cavalry acting professedly as a friendly escort but really as cautious warders kept close to the crusading hosts at length they reached the gates of philippopolis and here godfrey learnt that hugh of vermandois whose coming had been announced to the greek emperor alexius by four-and-twenty knights in golden armour and who styled himself the brother of the king of kings and lord of all the frankish hosts was a prisoner within the walls of constantinople with robert of normandy and robert of flanders with stephen of chartres and some lesser chiefs hugh had chosen to make his way through italy and the charms of that voluptuous land had a greater effect it seems in breaking up and corrupting their forces than the delights of capua had in weakening the soldiers of hannibal with little regard to order the chiefs determined to cross the sea as best they might hugh embarked at bari and if we may believe anna Comemna, the historian and the worshipper of her father alexius 
His fleet was broken by a tempest which shattered his own ship on the coast between Palos and Durachium, Durazzo, of which John Comemnas, the nephew of the emperor, was at this time the governor. The Frank chief was here detained until the good pleasure of Alexius should be known. That wary and cunning prince saw at once how much might be made of his prisoner, who was by his orders conducted with careful respect and ceremony to the capital, kept here really as a hostage, but welcomed to outward seeming as a friend, Hugh was so completely won by the charm and manner which Alexius well knew how and when to put on, that paying him homage and declaring himself his man, he promised to do what he could to induce others to follow his example. From Philippopolis, Godfrey sent ambassadors to Alexius, demanding the immediate surrender of Hugh. The request was refused, and Godfrey resumed his march, treating the land through which he passed as an enemy's country, until, by way of Adrianople, he at length appeared before the walls of the capital at Christmastide, 1096. The fears of Alexius were aroused by the sight of a host so vast and so formidable, they quickened into terror as he thought of the armies which were still on their way under the command of Bulmond and Tancred. Of Godfrey, beyond the fact of his mission as a crusader, he knew little or nothing, but in Bulmond he saw one who claimed as his inheritance no small portion of his empire. This gathering of myriads, whom a false step on his part might convert into open enemies, was the result of his own entreaties urged through his envoys before Urban II in the Council of Piacenza, and his mind was divided between a feverish anxiety to hurry them on to their destination and so to rid himself of their hateful presence, and the desire to retain a hold not only on the crusading chiefs but on any conquests which they might make in Syria. Hugh was sent back to Godfrey's camp, but the quarrel was patched up rather than ended. It was easier to rouse suspicion and jealousy than to restore friendship. But it was of the first importance for Alexius that he should secure the homage of the princes already gathered round his capital, before the arrival of his ancient enemy Bomond. In this he succeeded, and a compact was made by which Alexius pledged them his word that he would supply them with food and aid them in their eastward march, and would protect all pilgrims passing through his dominions. On the other hand, the crusading chiefs, as already subjects of other sovereigns, gave their fealty to the emperor as their liege lord only for the time during which they remained within his borders, and undertook to restore to him such of their conquests as had been recently wrested from the empire. In order to secure this treaty, Alexius had been compelled to go through the fatigue of interminable audiences with the western warriors, and to put up with not a little insolence. The effrontery of a crusader who, flinging himself on the imperial throne, declared that he saw no reason for standing while one rustic remained seated, was denounced as intolerable rudeness even by his companions. But Robert, Count of Paris, if indeed it was he, closed a brief career not many weeks later, and is more conspicuous in modern romance than in the pages of medieval historians. 
the spirit of bohemond was stirred deeply within him when on reaching constantinople he found that his colleagues instead of remaining independent chiefs had made themselves vassals of the byzantine monarch but alexius was vigorously aided by robert of flanders whose friendly offices were the result of an alliance made with his father eight years before and bohemond soon saw that he must in appearance follow the example of his comrades whatever course it might suit him to take hereafter he became the guest of the emperor listened with complacency to his flatteries accepted a magnificent gift or bribe and accompanied his submission with a request for the office of grand domestic or general of the east the emperor put him off with the promise of an independent principality and turned with more genuine warmth to the honest simplicity of godfrey this disinterested crusader was anxious only to fulfil his vows and alexius felt that he was making no sacrifice and entering into no inconvenient engagements by adopting him as his son the policy and the bribes of alexius had overcome the opposition of bohemond he was to experience a stouter resistance from raymond of toulouse who though he had been the first to enlist was the last to set out on his crusade he should never make another journey he said and he was determined to be well prepared wishing to avoid so far as he could the lines of march chosen by the chiefs who had preceded him he took the road through lombardy thus far his march was easily accomplished but things wore a different look when he reached the savage mountains and desolate valleys of dalmatia and slavonia the people had driven their cattle and their cattle formed practically their whole property into inaccessible glens and instead of plundering others the crusaders found themselves harassed and their stragglers cut off by thieves and murderers raymond retaliated by cutting off the hands and noses of all who were taken prisoners and putting out their eyes and the wrath of the natives was roused to desperate resistance at skodra he entered into some sort of agreement with the servian chief Bowden, but the country could yield little for the support of this vast army which was compelled to struggle onwards under dire difficulties it is astonishing to hear that raymond could still speak of himself as the leader of a hundred thousand warriors when he refused flatly to do homage to the greek emperor the count of toulouse scarcely regarded himself as the vassal even of the french king he was ready he said to be the friend of alexius on equal terms but he would not declare himself to be his man on this point he was immovable although bohemond tried the effect of a threat which was never forgiven that if the quarrel came to blows he should be found on the side of the emperor but alexius soon saw that in raymond he had to deal with an enthusiast as sincere and persistent as godfrey he took his measures accordingly and winning the heart of the old warrior although he failed to compel his obedience he confessed to him his dislike of the rude and noisy habits of the franks and his deep-seated fears of bohemond the admiration of anna Comnemna was as great as the esteem professed for him by her father raymond in her fervent language shone among the barbarians as the sun among the stars of heaven while alexius was thus busy in dealing with godfrey and raymond 
Bowmond and Tancred, he was no less anxiously occupied with the task of sending across the Bosphorus the swarms which might soon become an army of devouring locusts round his capital. It was easier to give them a welcome than to get rid of them, and more than two months had passed since Christmas when the followers of Godfrey found themselves on the soil of Asia, March 1097. It was well to place even a narrow strait of sea between himself and these dangerous friends, who had threatened him at first with all the horrors of savage war. The rumour had got abroad that Alexius meant to hem them in among marshes and leave them there to starve, and an assault of the crusaders on the suburbs showed the emperor what he might expect if these suspicions were not quieted. Probably he had not intended to entrap them to their death, but he had felt less scruple in submitting them to cheatings with debased coin and to extortions which carried with them no sense of novelty for his own people. Even these he found it politic to abandon, and so zealously did he employ an opposite method that for the time the crusaders seemed to have become his mercenaries. Godfrey's men had no sooner been landed on the eastern side of the Bosphorus than all the vessels which had transported them were brought back to the western shore. With great astuteness and at the cost of large gifts, Alexius in like manner freed the neighborhood of his capital from the invading multitudes. As fast as they came, they were hurried across, and the emperor breathed more freely, when on the feast of Pentecost not a single Latin pilgrim remained on the European shore. The danger of conflict had throughout been imminent, and the danger arose, not so much from the fact that the crusaders were armed men, marching through the country of professed allies, but from the thorough antagonism between Greeks and Latins in mode of thought and habits of life, in the first notions of civilization, law, and duty. For the Greeks, feudalism was a thing of the remote past, in other words, was a thing unknown. To get at a state resembling that of Western Europe, they would have had to go back for nearly twenty centuries to the days of Solon and the Thessalian and Theban nobility, who were among the most efficient allies of Xerxes. For the crusading armies, or rather for their chiefs, of the common herd there was no need to take any account, nothing was so hateful as the central authority which pressed on all orders in the state alike. Nothing was so precious as local tyranny and the right of private war, which respected neither person nor property. For the subjects of the Eastern Empire, the protection of person and property was everything, and in order to secure this, they were willing to put up with a large amount of oppression and corruption in their governors. In a sense, not so high, perhaps, as that which the words bore in the days of Herodotus, law was still their king, and of public law the Latins could scarcely be said to have any conception. Nor must we forget the vast gulf which separated the eastern from the western clergy. The latter were now becoming well broken into the yoke of celibacy, which had been finally thrust upon them by Damiani and Hildebrand. For the former, marriage was a condition for the very reception of their orders. 
the latin clergy had by this change been converted into a close order or caste which looked up to the roman pontiff as their head and hated the thought of an allegiance to any temporal ruler this empire within an empire was an idea which had not dawned on the greek or the eastern mind and the clergy of the west despised their brethren of the east for their cowardly submission to the secular arm these in turn shrunk with horror from the sight of bishops priests and monks riding with blood-stained weapons over fields of battle and exhibiting at other times an ignorance equal to their ferocity harmony between nations and races under such conditions is as hopeless as the voluntary mingling of oil and water and the result of contact was an exasperation of the suspicion jealousy and hatred which the one side felt instinctively for the supposed treachery lying and violence of the other End of section six